The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Sorry about your date. Well, it's okay. I just don't get it. I mean, I took every precaution not to get sick. I must have deed on us the him. How did this happen? I guess fate just had its own plan. <coughs> Is anyone going to make soup? Chicken and stars? And you could throw in some crackers. I'm not sure I can believe that stuff anyway. Fate, timing. Life is just random chaos, and then you die. Hey, hey, come on. Save it for your children's book. <laughs> Good morning, London. It's Thursday, March 20th, 2014. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Al Gretzky. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright <laughs> Love that great random chaos theory <laughs> from the crazy ones there, Al. Welcome yes. back. Welcome. Yeah. Thank you. You know, life is just random chaos, and then you die. <laughs> that's probably how we all feel when faced with unintended consequences. Absolutely. And that's our theme for today. Uh just a couple of things I wanted to sure. say, too. You know, I think all of us, you know, with regard to some intention we, we may have had or do still have, have never gotten around to acting on that intention, thereby leaving no evidence that the intention ever even existed. So did that intention ever exist if you didn't act on it, right? That's a question I want to look at later on in the show. <laughs> and is this just a fun academic question? No. Understanding our intentions is far more critical to understanding ourselves, philosophy, and even science more than most of us would ima imagine, including myself, until Al brought up this subject last week after the show when he suggested our theme for today, Unintended Consequences. So that's what we'll be looking at. Al, you want to kick it off? I, know I you will indeed. Got some examples for us to look right at. Right on. Uh, for the uh, second week in a row, um, I got uh, the idea came from the London Free Press. Uh, when I got home from the show last week, the first thing I did was make myself a coffee. Had to. Forgot to buy a Timmy's on the way home. <laughs> And my chance to win a car, which somebody actually did this week in London. Yeah, right in the same time. Sat down at the table, started reading the paper, and there on page three was a picture of a befuddled-looking Deb Matthews staring back at me beside an article called Reforms Could Cheat Patients, and uh, the uh, topic idea was in there. Matthews, who's uh, short on thinking and far on reaching department, made the changes because she said, and I quote, the system was rife with abuse. In a nutshell, it was her position that physiotherapy doctors were abusing the system and taking up more cash than they needed to look after a patient. So, the health minister, demonstrating her usual <coughs> competence, borrowed a page from the Medicaid system in the United States and set a flat fee for each ailment. That fee is $321. In other words, it doesn't matter if you visit the patient once or 10 times, it's $321. So let's see if I understand. Ms. Matthews insinuates the doctors are beating the system, so she brings in a new set of rules to stop this impropriety. However, these rules rely on these same doctors to be honest and see patients as often as necessary, yeah. even if it means more visits than $321. Bob, am I missing something here? 
<coughs> I don't think so, Al. <laughs> what, uh, so what could go wrong? Well, let's see. If the doctors are gaming the system, and I, for one, do not believe that for an instant, all they have to do to maintain the flow of dollars, or increase it even, is to see patients less and have more of them. I mean, even the head of the physiotherapist group, Amanda Smart, acknowledges this. The government has once again created a worse problem trying to solve another. This is called unintended consequences, and that's where the idea for this week's topic came from. Now, before I begin, I want people to know right up front that I was using Wikipedia as a source for some of my information and opening remarks. It certainly wouldn't look good for the unintended consequences of the show to be I was charged with plagiarism. <laughs> so what is unintended consequences? Let us use the aforementioned Wikipedia's succinct description. Unintended consequences, bracket, sometimes referred to as unanticipated consequences or unforeseen consequences, bracket, are outcomes that are not the ones intended by a purposeful action. Rather straightforward, would you not say, Bob? Yes, and very clear, too. <coughs> purposeful action is very important, as I discovered yeah. myself in looking into this. <laughs> so, the concept of unintended consequences is often attributed to one Adam Smith, who lived uh, from 1723 to 1790. He was a Scottish teacher, writer, and philosopher. Uh, among his many writings, he is best known for The Wealth of Nations, which back then even earned him the title of The Birth of Modern Economics. Now, it's said that Margaret Thatcher carried that book with her everywhere she went when she was the prime minister. Now, <clears throat> American sociologist Robert K. Merton, 1910 to 2003, who spent most of his career teaching at Columbia University, is credited uh, with introducing the concept to modern thinking along with his ideas of role model and self-fulfilling prophecy. What is rather deja vu-ish is that Merton's 1936 paper with the very proper scholastic title, The Unanticipated Consequence of Purposive Social Action, in which he <laughs> reintroduced the unintended consequence, describes the outcome of acts intended to cause social change. Everything old is new again. He was one of the first, if not the first, to acknowledge the, uh, the, the problem. Now, <clears throat> there are three basic types of unintended consequence, with several offshoots. Okay. Um, number one, a positive one, which is often referred to as luck. Lucked in, lucked out. I, I use lucked in. It seems to me that lucked out is an oxymoron. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. At least that's the way I look at it. Number two. I never thought about that before, lucked in and lucked out. Yeah. <laughs> N number two is a negative uh, uh, consequence, uh, which creates a new and often worse problem than the one at fault. And number three is an opposite effect, which creates a situation that makes the original problem worse and not better. Now, in the modern era, the law of unintended consequence has come to suggest that intervening in a complex system will often create unanticipated consequences, 
and outcomes. Not sure if I agree, uh, I agree with that fully, but I find that sometimes I can intervene in the smallest of matters and get into very, very hot water. <laughs> Although sometimes fun is poked at the end results of actions, often the results are not humorous, but rather consequential. Now, the effects of unintended consequence range from the sublime to the ridiculous, from the moderate to the extreme, and incidents can be singularly based, that is person to person, or nation to nation and everything in between. So, let's look at some specific cases, starting with occurrences in everyday life and families and family home. Now, this little story demonstrates how unintended consequences can, under the right condition, create both a winner and a loser. Hmm. Actually, I, I should rephrase that to say, create a winner by creating a loser. Oh, you'll, you, you okay. will under, you'll understand that. The that end. sounds like an intended consequence. Y but yeah, maybe yeah there you go. <laughs> um, I had the pleasure of growing up in the country back when times were simple enough that not every action was considered to be either a human rights violation or an act of malice or one of hatred. Sometimes we just did stuff. There's no real underlying idea or cause. We just did stuff. Back then, it was just fun. Like, like stuff with no real intention. Exactly, right? yeah. <laughs> now, now, back then, it was fun. Today, it probably would be an indictable offense. No. Now this oh, gee, I don't know if I want to hear that. You sure want to put the, this, this on the air? This story uh, <laughs> occurred on Halloween 1952, uh, right around there anyway. The, the prank in this story was part of what you would call countryside culture, a rite of passage. Now, it involves something simply called an outhouse. Back, okay. then, back then, the facilities, bathroom, if you wish, was a simple brown shack built over a pit. Now, you did not linger in the summer because of the gaseous odors that might overcome you, nor in the winter as the temperature inside was exactly the same as the temperature <laughs> yeah. outside. Now, the idea of the prank is simple. Pick someone's facility and tip it over. I know that in today's that doesn't sound like much, but we thought we were the wild bunch back yeah, then. Betcha. <clears throat> now, you decide ahead of time which outhouse and what time the deed was to be done. However, on this night, the tippers made a little mistake, and they chose a farmer who'd had enough, uh, and, and when the gang of future Hells Angels members arrived to <laughs> perpetrate their dastardly crime, disaster befell them. What the farmer had done was to move the outhouse over a few feet. <laughs> so as the boys approached in the cover of darkness, the lead lad, not noticing, fell through the cover and into the pits. Oh, my goodness. Now, today, that farmer would have been arrested for child endangerment. Back then, it was simply another life lesson. So, from the farmer's point of view, it was not an unintended consequence, quite the opposite. He set a trap and caught a skunk. From the culprit's point of view, an evening of questionable fun reached a very low point and turned into a stinking mess, and this would fall into the negative consequence group. I would think so, yes. <laughs> now, sticking around the home, 
Here's one I actually read about in a do-it-yourself magazine many years ago, when we first bought our new I home. Ha- I have to tell you of a yeah. similar experience I had when I was a kid. This happened when we went back to Germany to visit, and my, my grandparents lived on a farm. And I jumped off a barn roof into what I thought was a big nice big friendly pile of just dirt <laughs> it wasn't dirt it was yeah, the manure, manure pile, pile and i went yeah. right in up to my waist <laughs> i was six years old at the time sticking around at home here's one uh, i read about as i say in the magazine now a couple in a newly built subdivision decided after driving around in more established areas that a large mature tree adds value to the home should you decide to sell and knowing that there would be that would be an eventuality, they went ahead with the plan. Now, how could that possibly go wrong? How could there be an unintended consequence? Not only are you adding beauty to the home, you're planting an oxygen-producing machine that removes CO2 out of the atmosphere. I mean, that alone should make it right. <laughs> now, on top of that, you're providing a home for Mother Nature's little creatures. So, what could go wrong? Sadly, in this case, a couple of things. First, they did not fully understand the size of the tree they were planting. In this case, it was a weeping willow. They did not fully appreciate how much space it would require when it became full-grown, mm-hmm. and thus it wound up too close to the house, giving creatures such as coons and squirrels access to the roof thus to the soffits so they could chew in and get into the attic. Second, and even worse, roots. Weeping willows have massive roots that move through the ground like snakes. Oh, they do. And, and they crush and choke sewer lines um, and connections that set you back more money than a forest in your backyard <laughs> would pay you back. This joins Ms. Matthews in number three, making a bad situation worse. <laughs> now, um, finally, this uh, little short one. Um, good intentions can sometimes lead to negative consequences. When my son was young, I coached various sports. Parents knew I didn't have a problem taking their kids to the game if they needed a ride. Now, the only thing that I asked was there be, that they be there like 30 minutes ahead of time. That was my undoing because I did not have a rule. Like, phone me to make sure I had room. And one <laughs> afternoon, I had nine boys standing on my front yard looking for a ride to the game. Rules are not always made to punish or restrict. Sometimes they're there to protect us. That's basically the ones for this segment that I had. Excellent. Well, interesting that you, when, when we suggested this topic last week that you thought, the first thing you thought of as an example for our audio bite was from a Star Trek episode called The Trouble with Tribbles, which is all about unintended consequences. Oh, what is it? Is it alive? May I hold it? Oh, it's adorable. What is it? What is it? Why, lovely lady, it's a Tribble. A Tribble? Only the sweetest creature known to man. Except, and of course, your lovely self. <laughs> oh, it's purry. Listen, it's purry. It's only saying that it likes you. Are you selling them? That's what we're trying to decide right now. He won't bite, will he? Sir, transporting harmful animals from one planet to another 
is against regulations, or weren't you aware of that? <laughs> Besides, tribbles have no teeth. <laughs> hey, he's eating my grain. That'll be ten credits. That happens to be my sample, and I'll do with it as I please. And I please to give it to the lovely little lady here. Oh, I couldn't. Could I? I insist. What are you trying to do, ruin the market? Once this lovely little lady starts to show this precious little darling around, you won't be able to keep up with them. How long have you had that thing, Lieutenant? Since yesterday, Doctor. This morning I found out that he... I mean, she had had babies. Well, I'd say in that case you got a bargain. Lieutenant, do you mind if I take one of these down to the lab and see what makes it tick? Well, all right, Doctor, but if you're going to dissect it, I don't want to know about it. I won't harm a hair on its head, wherever that is. <laughs> <laughs> say, Lieutenant, as soon as you're giving them away, can I have one? Oh, sure, why not? I, I think they're old enough. Go ahead. You running a nursery, Lieutenant? Oh, Captain. Well, I hadn't intended to, sir, but the triple had other plans. <laughs> okay, there you, well, go, there you go. Welcome back to uh, Unintended Consequences, Part 2. Now, in this segment, I'll, I'll cover some issues with a little more relevance to the community at large, so to speak. Now, the first one uh, involves a device that is in, I dare say, every home in Canada. A this device. A device. Uh. This is an item we have grown so attached to as to become dependent on it, which in and of itself qualifies as a type of unforeseen consequence. You see, it's basically all around us. However, I digress. Now, it's important to note that the man who invented this device did so almost solely by accident. Now, his name is Perry Spencer. He's a remarkable individual who did not let the fact that he became an orphan at the age of seven, nor that he didn't even finish grade school, stop him from becoming a genius with electronics and a decorated civilian during the Second World War. Now, from an early age, he was driven to better himself, basically teaching himself everything he could about electronics. Now, while he liked learning, Mr. Spencer loved chocolate. He would often carry one in his pocket to snack on. One day, while working on improving the methods of building magnetrons for radar equipment, the field in which he excelled, he noticed while standing in front of an active radar set that the chocolate bar in his pocket had melted. Messy. Now, others before him had noticed various effects on items, but didn't do anything about it. But Perry Spencer, he was more inquisitive than others and decided to look into the connection between the radar, and the chocolate bar. Long story short, microwave was born. The melting of a chocolate bar and the microwave it created is a positive example of the result of an unintended consequence. Hmm. Now, as, as a I didn't know that. As, as a point of interest, the first commercially produced microwave stood six feet tall, <laughs> weighed about 750 pounds, and had a mere price tag of $5,000. Now, let's move on to a product this time. 
Could you fit a turkey in it? <laughs> <laughs> Probably could. I don't know. And, and its owner. Um, let us move on to a product that over its owner <laughs> had been called, uh, the, uh, this product been called the savior of society and also the bane of humanity all at the same time. The product's chemical name, which I shouldn't even attempt to say, but I'm going to. Here we go. Oh, here comes Di- the consequence. Dichloral diphenyl trichlorothane. Not bad. The uh, more simplified name is organic chloride. The more common name is DDT. This product was first synthesized in 1874 in Germany. However, no one had a really good use for it until chemist Paul Hermann Mueller in 1939. Now, he found that it was devastating to pests. The first large-scale use was during the Second World War to control malaria and uh, typhus. The product saved so many lines, Mueller won the Nobel Prize for his work. Now, because uh, after the war, the uh, word about this product spread quickly, and it grew to be a staple in pest control because it was so cheap, easy to use, and effective. Then in 1962, Rachel Carson wrote a book called The Silent Spring in which she published studies that appeared to demonstrate DDT was not only killing pests, but killing wildlife and causing cancer in humans, and was in general, in her book, a harbinger of death to society. The Silent Spring caused outrage among conservationists, and simply on the basis of the information and the findings in her book. Now, some of those studies have since been shown to be possibly less than accurate, the one in particular that showed uh, the rats that ate the DDT uh, developed tumors was found to be possibly flawed when it was discovered the food on which it was fed uh, had, uh, had mold, and possibly that was the reason. Now, this was the first major challenge for conservationists, and it was a successful one. Within a relatively short time, they had managed to get DDT banned. Today, there's a growing number of individuals who see DDT as a variable option for the control of malaria. Because of its long life, that is that it's not readily soluble, it remains in the soil, so there is an understanding that it might not be great for widespread use. Now, while the overuse of DDT may well have been a major control problem and uh, created the unforeseen circumstances that it did, or consequences that it did, the complete ban was itself a pendulum too far the other way. And this has had an opposite effect in the unintended consequence. And every year, millions of people in equatorial regions die from malaria, spread by mosquitoes, pregnant women and children being the bulk of those deaths. Now, during its, uh, from, from its beginning in 1948, it was noted that malaria deaths dropped significantly, and they went from two and a half million to just several hundred by the early 60s. Mm-hmm. After it was banned in 1964, the numbers quickly went back up to the millions. Okay, here's an example that involves thought. Mm-hmm. A very Ooh, evil... Well, that's, uh, that's something I'll be talking about. Yeah, hey, this is an evil yeah. thought. Uh-oh. I do not know from whence this piece of social engineering came, but wherever it was, I wish we could send it back. (laughs) 
as as life moves forward, our ability to think rationally and logically seems to be moving backward, and this is a really good example. I'm referring to zero-tolerance policies in schools. It would seem that the modern thinking caps used by educational bureaucrats come with an off switch that works this way. Gather a bunch of educats together, let them put on those hats, and that effectively turns off their common sense. That is the only possible explanation of where this asinine concept came from. Example. This young man is 17. He's volunteered since an early age with the fire department, police department, has signed up to join the army when he turns 18. His goal is to become proficient in firefighting and police work. When he comes out, he'll have a career. Now, his school has a zero policy for weapons. A jackknife was observed in his firefighter's EMS kit. It was in the trunk of his car, parked on school grounds. He was immediately arrested and spent two weeks in the county jail and is currently on trial for which, if he loses, his entire life as he knew it is lost. Think of this logically. Does any one of these idiots on the board really believe that someone's going to say, geez, they have a zero tolerance policy on weapons. I better not take mine in today to cause some havoc that I had planned. Yeah, right. Finally, yeah. let me end it up. Do I have time to... Yeah, but you know, I hear a story like that, and I, it's almost unbelievable, isn't it? It, it is. <laughs> uh, there, there's, a couple of, there's a couple of others, but I mean... Um, you got a couple minutes, maybe a minute two. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I just want to finish off with, with this particular one. Um, I'd like to finish off in, in a positive note. He just wanted to raise money for cancer research, so he decided to run from Newfoundland to Victoria. This man, made, this man made the choice not for any monetary gain nor personal fame. He saw a need and an opportunity and he stepped forward. The fact that he had already lost a leg was not a deterrent but an incentive. And I don't think that it would be out of line to say that Terry Fox probably never envisioned what it was he started that day that he put his foot in the Atlantic, turned around, and began his epic run. And if he were here today, I have no doubt his only comments would, would not be about him, but instead how happy he was that so many have picked up the torch and carried it in his stead. The Terry Fox run for the cure is an amazingly wonderful, unanticipated consequence. It certainly is. Great story, Al. And, uh, you know, just to finish it off, um, you know, imagine a number of people have wondered whatever happened to those Tribbles when they <laughs> beamed them on board that Klingon ship. That's how they got them off Captain's, Captain Kirk's ship at the end. Yes. Well, perhaps this next scenario may give us a clue as to what happened after that. We'll be back. I have completed my search of the primary habitat level. What is that sound? Soothing, isn't it? The bartender called it. A triple. Where did you get that thing? From a man named Cyrano Jones. He told me tribbles like everyone, but this one doesn't seem to like you. The feelings... Feelings mutual. They are detestable creatures. Hmm. Interesting. It's been my observation that most humanoids love soft, furry animals. 
especially if they make pleasing sounds. They do nothing but consume food and breed. If you feed that thing more than the smallest morsel in a few hours, you'll have ten triples, then a hundred, then a thousand. Calm down. They were once considered mortal enemies of the Klingon Empire. <laughs> this? A mortal enemy of the Empire? They were an ecological menace, a plague to be wiped out. Wiped out? What are you saying? Hundreds of warriors were sent to track them down throughout the galaxy. An armada obliterated the triple home world. By the end of the 23rd century, they had been eradicated. Hmm. Another glorious chapter of Klingon history. Tell me, do they still sing songs of the great triple hunt? <laughs> What are you doing? Aren't you banished? Shh, shh, that mistress will hear you. I got hungry. Do you know how to cut the corners off of grilled cheese? Yeah, I do. I'm not gonna bite it into the shape of a heart for you, though. That's hurtful. Sorry. So what do you think about the whole Sydney I'm gonna lock down Kyle situation? That's weird, right? No, girl needs a win. Her last date took her to Chili's, bowling, then to the symphony with special guest Yo-Yo Ma. That was me. We had a friend night out. So the story's even sadder than I thought. We were in the presence of a master chose. The point is, she's moving so fast. It's like she's planning out her whole life with this guy. It's, it's uncomfortable to watch, right? Ah, so it's like that, huh? Well, what do you care? Aren't you back on with Nancy? Oh, she gave me a chore wheel. Man draws a line somewhere. Glad you made it out. Thanks. Glad to be here. But what about this whole Sydney thing? I mean, it's weird, right? Well, clearly, you know, you two have a thing with the tragic friend dates and all the looks. What, she looks at me? Yeah. The only problem is you two never look at each other at the same time. But I should try to make that happen. I'm not really sure it matters, bud. Once she goes on that date with Dr. Kyle, it's anyone's game. <laughs> well, really, it's his game. He'll be the winner of that game. Will you feel my forehead? No. So what would I do? I, I can't upend the date. That would be sophomoric, and it's unnecessary. He's not perfect, right? Well, let's see. He's a six-foot-two triathlete who occasionally smiles. It's not a verb. It's a profession. It's like, you don't say, hey, Mr. President, have fun presidenting today. You know, for a guy who knows his verbs, I don't see you doing anything. And that's just about how Scottish philosopher John McMurray sees the entire subject of philosophy itself. For a guy who knows his verbs, I don't see you doing anything. That's from the crazy ones. And it speaks to the subject of turning your wishes into reality. And that's who I want to look at this uh, segment of the show is Scottish philosopher John McMurray. I found it interesting that you brought up another Scottish philosopher and economist, Adam Smith. Uh, I, I, I mentioned before, I wonder if there's something in the Scottish culture that comes out with a lot of these thoughts on these particular themes and ideas. Thinking versus action. Intentions versus consequences. I don't know about you, Al, but it sure reminds me of politics. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, all talk and no action, or maybe all theory and no action, is definitely what philosopher John McMurray is opposed to. To John McMurray, all human action qualifies as such action only if it is predicated by intention. Otherwise, it's not action. Action to McMurray is an intention applied to reality. He's talking about human action here, of course. Mm -hmm. And most importantly, McMurray understands that ind individual humans have free will, and that free will does not in any way conflict with the deterministic nature of science or of the universe. 
So when somebody says to somebody else, did, did you mean to say that, or why did you do that? We're actually asking about that person's intentions, aren't we? When we ask the purpose of what they did, so that we can make a judgment on whatever action may have been in question. Did the intention match the consequence? And for McMurray, it all begins with an axiom we've heard about on this show before many times. The fact that existence exists. Writes McMurray, existence cannot be proved. It is not a predicate. We know existence by participating in existence. This participation is action. When we expend energy, we realize an intention. We meet a resistance, which both supports and limits us. What is given is the existence of a world in which we participate, which sustains and in sustaining limits our wills. And he makes this, this point. He says, I make no preposterous claim that I can do anything and everything at will and unconditionally. Every action is, is conditional and is conditioned both by the determinate nature of the world in which it must be done and by my own determinate nature as an object in that world. Without this determination, I could not act at all and so could have no freedom. You know, he, he gave, a, I don't have these notes, but he gave a previous example on physics where he, where he discussed the nature of freedom requiring resistance so that you can act. He said you could be a free-floating body in space, just floating freely in your space suit. You can't do anything. You're, you're free, but you can't act. You require the resistance of a physical object against which to push yourself so that you can create motion. And that is a fundamental law of the universe. And he, and he brings it into his philosophy right, right down to the root. You know, to borrow from the often debatable, um, because it depends on the context, phrase, action removes the doubt that theory cannot solve, I would suggest that action removes the doubt that intention cannot anticipate. That would be a more accurate way of saying it, I think. Unanticipated consequences whether intended or not. And these consequences of a single action can have greater unintended results than anyone might ever imagine. And that depends upon the time frame in which those consequences are being measured and observed. And we could talk about the tribbles, you know. Yep. The, the short time frame was what happened on board the Enterprise. The long time frame was the Great Tribble Wars. <laughs> okay. So consequences extend through time. A single action prompted by a single intention may reverberate with continued specific consequences which would not have taken place without the original act, perhaps even for centuries or a millennia. Some people call that the butterfly effect. Remember yep. that? Yes, good movie. Yeah. There's no way that such things could be anticipated. Now from action, we move to thought, and this is what McMurray had to say on thought. And this is very interesting. The self the mind and the will, are metaphysical fictions. There are no such entities. So he's saying like, you won't find something like that sitting in nature. These are things that we talk about. They are, however, not gratuitous fictions. They are necessary postulates for any philosophy which proceeds on the assumption, consciously or not, that we can know independent of action, that we can determine truth within the limits of an effort of thought. The act of thinking is constituted by a purely theoretical intention. It involves a withdrawal from action, as so from all positive practical relations with the other. And when he says the other, he means 
any other object, any other physical object, but mostly in this case I think he's talking about other people, people. other yes. individuals. When we think, we shut ourselves within the circle of our own ideas and establish, as it were, our met- a metho- methodological solipsism, which is the theory that the self is the only thing that really is existent, kind of comes from Plato. We behave as though we were pure subjects, observers only, unimplicated in the dynamic relatedness of real existence. Our activity, we assume, makes no difference to the things we think about, but only to our ideas of them, upon which we alone are operative. Our activity, we assume, makes no difference. So there can be no objection to this procedure, so long as it remains within the agency of the thinker as its negative aspect. For we recognize that the thinking and its results have a meaning through their reference to our direct commerce with reality in action, in which their truth or falsity can be checked. But when, for philosophical purposes, we adopt a theoretical standpoint and so define our own being as that of thinker or subject, then whether we're aware of it or not, we transform this methodological solipsism (laughs) into an existential one. All these big words, eh? (laughs) Yes. We exist as thinkers. We're imprisoned in an egocentric predicament, and there's no way out. In other words, we're committed to explaining knowledge without reference to action. And this is what we find so much when people theorize, right? And, and, and I, wonder, yeah. I wonder if the farmer in my story, what he was thinking with those boys and whether he just wanted to turn them into little stinkers. <laughs> in his mind, that might have been his, <laughs> his fantasy, you know. And then he says, uh, you know, on the, he speaks to the dualism of, quote, pure thought, you know. Pure thought, if there could be such magic, he said, would be pure fantasy. A thinking which could not be false cannot be true. Quick, true or false? (laughs) I think that's true. And uh, this kind of thinking, says McMurray, leads to dualism, a term that's often used to describe the separation of the mind and body. In this case, a separation of theory from action or from, you know, application and practice. People who retreat into pure theories and thought without referring them to action are thinking in terms of dualism. Even so, all people, regardless of how they think, and this is now McMurray again, they must have a motive. And we have uncovered the motive of dualist thinking. It is the desire to know the truth without having to live by the truth. Isn't that a statement? It is the secret wish to escape from moral commitment and from responsibility. So McMurray's saying, in effect, that it's okay to pretend that you're the whole universe, the only existent, for theoretical and reflective purposes, but this can prove nothing. Or to be more precise, it cannot prove anything. <laughs> it actually can prove nothing. Because in this state of pure thinking, a solipsist exercising the metaphysical fiction that we call your mind probably could prove that nothing exists. And that's exactly where that kind of conclusion, non-existence exists, comes from. From platonic thinkers detached from any test of their theories to the test of acting on those theories. Because in the world of reality, the first thing we're going to encounter is the fact that something exists, <laughs> right? In the field of action, one can only act against the resistance of that which exists, right? Which is, one right. W- which is why you have that great phrase, and then he ran into the real world, and he that bumped into the real world. Bingo, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, previously on the show, I, I had postulated 
my own theory of separating the concepts of good and evil, moral and immoral, and right and wrong from each other. And I want to do the test against what McMurray said. I discussed these three uh, definitions and distinctions. They're my own on a previous broadcast of Just Right. And today I just wanted to contrast them with some of these ideas. Uh, One of the things McMurray says, it is to be noted that the moral rightness or wrongness of an action resides in its intention. And on another quote he says, morality presupposes freedom. To act is to make something other than it would have been if we had not determined it. In knowing an object, we make a difference to it. In acting upon it, or or sorry, we make no difference to it. In acting upon it, we do make a difference to it. We can only know a determinate world. We can only act in an indeterminate world. Freedom, he says, is a necessity of reason. The belief that our judgments can be true or false depends on our belief that our actions can be right or wrong. So I compared this to what I had, and I had it broken down to good and evil, moral and immoral, and right and wrong. And these things are not exactly the same thing. Good and evil has to do with intentions and with motivations. And here's what I added since reading this. It concerns the future and the future only. An intention realized or acted upon is no longer an intention, is it? It's been acted upon. It's an act now. Um, so anything you do is done. You can't undo it. Uh, it doesn't matter what it is. Want, you know, just in, and if it's, if it's evil, it depends on the intention. Do you want to hurt others? Do you want something for nothing? Do you not want to be personally responsible? Then there's moral and immoral. That's the present, the point of action, the point of existence. And It has to do with actions in the light of knowledge gained from previous experience and the acceptance or rejection of personal responsibility for those actions. And, you know, so it happens in the present. Morality is about behavior, and behavior is by definition action taken in the real world. This is the one area where intentions do not appear to be the factor. One can behave immorally without intending to do so. Right? That's very, there's where the distinctions come in. And, Finally, the determined, the past, right and wrong, the unchangeable. What were the consequences? Or as you would have put it, Al, it's the reality test, when you run into reality, okay? And that's when you finally know, is it right or wrong? It has to do with whether one's intentions, motivations, or actions are in accordance with reality and reason. Or as McMurray might have put it, if the test of action proved the intention or disproved it. Now, what I've added to these definitions and distinctions since I last discussed them on the show is the factor of time, past, present, future. And so far, the pattern and association seem to be pretty consistent with with that breakdown of, uh, of that moral hierarchy. And that's why when we return to our discussion in about three and a half minutes, we will be talking about the future knowledge that we do intend to have. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Welcome to Deep Space Nine. I'm Major Kira. I'm Delmer. Luxley, Department of Temporal Investigations. We've been expecting you. I guess you boys from Temporal Investigations are always on time. Where's Captain Sisko? Are you sure you don't want anything? Just the truth, Captain. You'll get it. Where do you want to start? The beginning. If there is such a thing. Captain, why'd you take the Defiant back in time? It was an accident. 
So you're not contending it was a predestination paradox? A time loop? That you were meant to go back into the past? Uh, no. Good. We hate those. So, what happened? This may take some time. Is that a joke? No. Good. We hate those too. All right, Captain. Whenever you're ready. Summers? Glad you could get here so fast. Well, well you said... Yeah, right. Have a seat. Thank you. How's it going, Landers? Fine. You've taken over while Slavak is vacationing right here. Yes, sir. What is this uh, seeing God crap all about? Well, it's not crap, Mr. Summers. Uh, I've seen him. You know, I've uh, heard it all in this chair. I know what being a manager can do to a man. Now, I don't think that Mr. Wilson is going to take too kindly to the idea that one of his employees is claiming to have had a personal audience with the Almighty himself. I, I should think that he would be very happy to know that his prayers are heard. Mr. Wilson has reached that point in his life where he can be sure his prayers are heard. He doesn't need any help from you. Over here. I thought I'd straighten up a little. The mess people make. Take a seat. It started, huh? You said you saw me and the pressure started. Is, is, is it going to get any worse? How should I know? What do you mean, how should you know? How could I know? Well, you know everything. I only know what is. Also, I'm very big on what was. On what isn't yet, I haven't got a clue. Well, when move, you said... Move, move your foot. Oh. Sit, sit down, sit down, sit down. When you said that everything was going to work out, I, I thought you could tell the future. Absolutely, I could tell the future. The minute it becomes the past. I said everything could work out, if that's everybody's choice. People have to decide on their own what's to be done with the world. I can't make a personal decision for everybody. <laughs> that was George Burns from the movie Oh God, and what he just summarized in that scene that we just heard is an amazing reflection of how Scottish philosopher John McMurray would have put it. And it also explains why freedom is such a necessity. Again, we're dealing with past, present, and future. The past is the determined and knowable if someone kept a record of it. But either way, it can no longer be affected. The present is what is, what exists. And the present is the point of action and is the only possible point of action. And finally, the future is the indeterminate, which means unknowable and unpredictable. For humans, the future is a matter of intentions when it comes to action. Now, what we call time is the imaginary line that connects each to the other in a string of causality, a process that leads many to believe that they can predict the future because they've seen that, you know, that line going along and saw X happen after, after you know, W, hopefully, <laughs> but it might have come before Y and Z, which will sometimes surprise us. And yes, we can ponder, even very accurately within our ability to measure and control the circumstances, probabilities of outcomes regarding human action with increasing or decreasing percentages of possibilities. 
and we know how good we're at we're, we're doing that that when it comes to weather mm-hmm. forecasting aren't we human action is infinitely different from any other kind of celestial or earthly motion of inanimate energy or matter human action is accompanied by intention and that's the key, isn't it, Al? Mm-hmm. Yep. And intentions of necessity have, have something to do with reaching forward through time. Now, here's what McMurray had to say on science. He says, science has revealed structured order, breathtaking in its intricacy and infinite in its extent. But science has only revealed and described this infinite orderliness with increasing adequacy. It has done nothing at all to explain it. The existence of orderly structure, however fine, is not itself evidence of design. Design implies a purposeful adaptation of means to ends. The scientific world consists of events which happens in accordance with unchanging natural laws and which constitute a continuum of happenings in space-time. Everything in it happens. Nothing is ever done. And none of its constituent elements is capable of reflection. Like a rock can't think about what it just did, right? Correct. None of its atoms or any of its complex systems of atoms can make a mistake or commit a folly. They can't be right or wrong. You know, there's no right or wrong. From a scientific point of view, we ourselves are complex systems of atoms obeying without fail the laws of the transformation of energy. All our movements are events which happen, not actions for which we are responsible and which fail to realize our intentions. If we are thought of as parts of the scientist's world, then we cannot make mistakes or be in error or have illusions, not even the illusion that we are free to act. If I determine the other merely as body, I must determine myself merely as body. If as a system of energy, then I must determine myself reciprocally as a system of energy. But I know that the energy I exert in action is intentionally determined. And this we express by saying that I am an agent who does things and whose acts are not merely events which happen. That's where the term free agent comes from, right? Right, yep. Consequently, I must characterize the other in the same terms, as an agent acting intentionally in relation to me. So the other guy's got intentions too, and that's where we're getting in trouble, right? Finally, we come back to the common sense distinction between what is done and what simply happens. Actions are the realizations of intentions. Events are the effects of causes, and they're merely other, which are caused by mere other happenings and events. I went into that in great detail on our, on our, on our previous show. So what has been determined is the past, but the agent is concerned with the future and its determination. And what is energy? It is action without an agent. So in action, he passes beyond his existence transcending the past which constitutes his determinate being. His reality as agents lies in his continual self-transcendence. And this is one of the reasons that I've always said, you know, if there is a God, it is us. We're the agents. We're the free will that's exercised in this universe as far as we know. Any being capable of intention is not natural with respect to action and determination. Free will, in that sense, exists in nature, but we can't call it an unintended act, right? In action, existence is given. There's no question of proving existence, but only of determining its character by means of the ideas that refer to it. Now, McMurray makes a distinction between science and philosophy. 
and he contrasts two types of knowledge. The philosophical and the scientific, both are related as the personal attitudes which sustain them, in the sense that only a person is capable of adopting either. The philosophical is knowledge of persons as persons, and therefore as agents. It is the full and inclusive knowledge of the personal other. For to be an agent, a person must also be a continuant object in the world. The scientific knowledge is, however, limited and abstract. It is the knowledge of the personal other insofar as he's de a determined object, and so as he appears to a mere observer. All scientific knowledge rests on a postulate of determinism. If it did not, it wouldn't be objective. But science itself is a matter of intention, not merely a matter of fact. That's why we have science. We intended to have it, right? The question whether the personal conception of men as free agents or the scientific conception of man as a determined being is the correct one does not arise except through a misunderstanding because both are correct. And this is possible because they do not refer to the same field. The distinction we've drawn between a personal and an objective knowledge of one another rests on this, that all objective knowledge is knowledge of matter of fact only and necessarily excludes any knowledge of what is matter of intention. What is intended is never a matter of fact, though it may be a fact that I intended it. <laughs> For what is intended is always future, and there are no future facts. An objective, scientific fact, uh, knowledge of other persons cannot treat them as agents, but only as determinate objects, that is, as continuance. So in other words, McMurray's saying that if you only look at other people in scientific factual terms, you'll never understand the nature of the beast. Right? Man, the creature that rose from the black lagoon of determinism stepping on the shores of free will and intention against the resistance of the determined. Philosophy, says McMurray, is the only source of knowledge about people as people, about people as agents. And here, to conclude, Al, I have an observation to make about the left and right political spectrums. It would appear to me, based on what I've learned, that the left is motivated, intentions, by science and determinism, whereas the right seems to be more motivated by philosophy and free will uh, that makes having intentions possible. In essence, the political left has thrown philosophy, uh, you know, as any understanding of human behavior and action, right out the window entirely, its motivation for dealing with the other, while the right is motivated by philosophical issues, explaining to some degree why the right wing often dismisses science in favor of the personal, right? And since politics deals with people and not with scientific facts, clearly being on the right appears to be the more appropriate kind of knowledge to pursue in this context. No wonder communist and fascist regimes, which are both left, treat their citizens as chattel, cattle, and objects, <laughs> while the leaders themselves hypocritically exercise their intentions upon other people. Think about that, right? Without the consent of the other agents who should also be allowed to have intentions. To the forced collective, the people, quote, are just objects whose fate is determined by what is done to them. And that's how you can tell a free country from an unfree one. The leaders and motivators of the forced collective in their pure thought, intellectualized palaces of the unreal become dictators and monsters as the unintentional consequence of an intentional objective, avoiding being held responsible for their actions. Community is a matter of intention, says McMurray. To maintain equality of persons in relation is justice. My care for you is only moral if it includes the intention to preserve your freedom as agent with your independence of me. Even if you wish to be dependent on me, it is my business for your sake to prevent it. Interesting, isn't it?
Some, sometimes humans <laughs> humans are no different than that rock you mentioned, not understanding what they've done or what they're going to do. That's know? right. So I really didn't intend to get into this whole thing all this week. So what really <laughs> happened to me was a direct consequence, intended or not, of Al's idea to make unintended consequences our theme this week. And I think there's someone else in the room with us who has his own intentions of moving on to the next program, eh, Ed? <laughs> okay, time to go. Join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, hey, you know what to do. We'll be right back here. See you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. When I went to the shooting range, they told me wearing earplugs would protect my ears. But the ball went right through the earplug into my brain. (laughs) 